Hello, I'm Mark Thompson. Welcome to the conversation. So excited that you could join us. It's always a pleasure to be able to do this show. We get to talk to so many exciting people and insightful people. And with everything going on in the world, I mean, there is no shortage of, of stuff to talk about. And this is a special conversation with Sasha Abramsky. And I'm just looking down at all the things Sasha's done. I mean, you know Sasha Abramsky's work with The Nation, The Atlantic. I mean, a freelance writer who's who's work is in so many of these different publications, but and Rolling Stone, The Daily Beast, The Village Voice, I can go on and on and on. But uh, he has uh, uh, books that are of interest, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear, and The End of the American Dream is one. And I believe Sasha's latest book is, um, and we may not consider pertinent to the conversation we're about to have, but nonetheless, it's his latest work. It's called Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. Welcome to the conversation, Sasha Abramsky. Hey, Mark, so good to be on again. Uh, I wanna talk to you about something that's quite serious and that was spoken of in sort of stage whispers early on in this administration. And that's really the notion that this administration led by Donald Trump, it's a cultist nature with strains of the religious right running through it, with a kind of alt-right, heavy taste of alt-right going through it as well, is capable of anything to hang on to power, including something of a coup d'etat that would keep Trump in power regardless of what the election results were. Yeah, look, four years ago, five years ago now, when I started writing about Donald Trump, I was, really obsessed by the authoritarian timbre of his personality. The idea that this is a man who regarded everything as transactional, that there was nothing he wouldn't do in pursuit of power. And four years ago, that was kind of a sort of edgy view to have about Donald Trump because people were still trying to understand him as a mainstream politician. And they were still trying to do political coverage that treated it something like the horse race that we're used to politics being. And now it's abundantly clear, it's abundantly clear to anyone who's paying attention that this is a man who will use the levers of power absolutely ruthlessly and will do so with Attorney General Barr's approval, will do so maybe with Mike Esper's approval at the um, Pentagon, that this is a man who does not respect the breaking mechanisms of democracy. And he will do anything and everything to try and hang on. It doesn't mean he's gonna win, it doesn't mean he'll be successful. But it means we have to expect that this man will not play by the democratic rules over the coming weeks and months. Well, that certainly seems true. But what's interesting, and you just alluded to it and you write about it, is the use of others, his henchmen, like Bill Barr. I mean, these are these are extremely powerful people within the system that we've set up. So you've got the Attorney General, you've got the Supreme Court, you have other court appointments that that may support you in such an effort. In other words, it's more than just Donald Trump acting as a rebel himself, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, there's an element of Trumpism which is completely chaotic, and Trump talks about left-wing anarchists. But you know, there's certainly an element of the Trump presidency that you could look at and say this is right-wing anarchism. This is just destruction for the sake of destruction. And yet, at the same time. Trump and the personality around Trump, the personality cult around Trump only function with acolytes. They only function with enablers. And what we're seeing now is this marching in step of different parts of a Trumpified bureaucracy, different parts of a Trumpified governing system, 
where the end goal is not a set of ideas, it's not a set of values, it's not even a world vision. It's simply the perpetuation of Trump's personal power. And this is something extraordinary. You know, we, we've seen many, many eras of political chaos in this country. We've seen many eras of political polarization in this country. That's all standard. That's that's part of the back and forth of democratic politics. What we've never seen is the capturing of the political mechanism by a cultist system based entirely around the figure of one leader, the great leader sort of phenomenon. And that's anti-democratic, that, that's what you see in North Korea. It's what you see in Stalin's Soviet Union. It's what you saw in fascist countries in 1930s Europe. It is utterly antithetical to democracy to use all of the levers of power for the personal advantage of one individual and one family. And yet, what you also suggest is that while he certainly is involved with moneying himself and a presidency for sale, foreign policy for sale, and, and really only pursuing things that benefit him personally, others to whom you've alluded even in this conversation, Bill Barr and others, they're involved with another agenda. So it's not so much that Trump serves their agenda in any kind of way that that he's concerned with. But maintaining his power helps their agenda in other ways. No, and it's really interesting. There's actually been quite a lot written in the last few weeks about who's who's controlling who. Is Trump controlling Barr or is Barr controlling Trump? Who, who, you know, where's the power dynamic? And I think it runs both ways. Trump, you know, Trump's extremely good at using the levers of power for personal advantage. On the other hand, Barr does have an agenda. He's always wanted an expansive understanding of executive power. He's always wanted to remold, remold and reshape the American constitutional system to skew power towards the White House and towards the executive. And I think when you look at the reason that Trump has survived for the last four years. I mean, look, this is a man who has stumbled from one scandal and one outrage to the next. He said one outrageous thing after another. He's flirted with white nationalism. He's flirted with neo-Nazi groups. He's done things that are unfathomable in the political context that we understand American democracy. But he survives because he's useful to people. He's useful to Mitch McConnell because he helps Mitch McConnell get conservative judges nominated and put onto the courts. He's useful to Mitch McConnell or to Republicans in the House because he promotes tax cuts for the plutocrats, for the wealthy elites. He's useful to business interests who have long wanted deregulation and now have someone in the White House who's willing to pretty much scrap any and every environmental regulation any and any workplace protection and so on. He's useful to the Christian right, to the fundamentalists, because he's willing to pursue an anti-abortion agenda, not necessarily because Trump's ideologically anti-abortion or pro-life. He doesn't give a damn about any of those things, but he's useful to them because he's willing to give them what they want. And so there are all these different parts of the power structure that are coming together in Donald Trump's presidency and shoring it up. And you know, again, none of this means Trump is going to win re-election. None of it means he's going to be able to preserve his hold on power. In fact, I tend to think he's going to lose. But it does mean that we're entering a very dangerous moment where we have to be incredibly alert because this is a man who isn't going to go gracefully. This is a man who isn't going to leave the spotlight in any elegant manner whatsoever. And to that point, it feels as though in a country where everybody is armed to the teeth, and just have so many guns, and certainly these Trump followers, 
have so many guns. I don't mean I don't mean to gin up anxiety where it doesn't belong or make this a sexier story. But I really think you know he can marshal his forces of of support, if you want to just call it that. But they're radical forces of support. He can marshal them quite quickly with a tweet, you know, with yeah. with any series of tweets. And I wonder, and you reference this too in some of your writings. I wonder just how civil unrest may fuel his ultimate goal of staying in power. Well, I mean, there's no mystery to that. Trump's team has been saying for the last couple of months that chaos benefits him. And they believe that. They may believe it rightly or wrongly, but they believe that like Nixon in the late 60s and early 70s, the more chaos there is on the streets, the more people will go to an authoritarian, putative strongman leader. Now, Trump's ability, the difference between Trump twofold. One, you've got this conservative media ecosystem, Fox News, Breitbart, and so on, which will never break with him. They're willing to go down whichever dark road he goes down. But the second thing is social media. You can very, very quickly send out messages to followers or send out a sort of nudge and a wink to followers. And that's acted on, not by all of them. Trump has 60 million Twitter followers. The vast majority of those men and women aren't going to you know, do a legal thing simply because Trump tells them to do so. But there's a risk that some will. And you know, that's a risk that has to be considered, contemplated, and strategized around over the coming weeks and months. Because look, there's at least the possibility that Trump is going to fairly heavily lose the election. And there's at least the possibility he's going to sow doubt about that result. He's already said he will. He's already said we can't trust mail-in voting. He's already said there's going to be urban voter fraud, which is basically code for Democrats trying to steal votes. He's saying all kinds of things designed to make people suspicious of a result that doesn't sort of preordain, that doesn't go down a road he said has to happen, which is his victory. And so there's the risk that at the back end of that, you're going to have some percentage of his followers coming out and you know doing stupid things. And then the question is, how does the broader structures, how do they respond? How do law enforcement respond? How do popular democratic movements respond? How do progressive movements respond? And you know that's something that there are a lot of people thinking about at this point. I know that because I've talked to them, and they're thinking about it from across the political spectrum. I've interviewed people who served with Ronald Reagan's administration and George H.W. Bush's administration, all the way through to groups like Indivisible and Move On, who have been protesting Trump's policies from the get-go. It's a really broad group of people who are trying to plan out what to do if these bad things start happening in the next few weeks and months. I love that you touched on that because I was just about to get to you know what's going to happen. Okay, this is the threat. I mean, it's palpable. It's real. And and you've just and you've just and you've just touched on it, which which I appreciate. We're out of time for Sasha Bromsky. I'm so sorry because Sasha, I could talk to you for hours. Your your perspective is valuable, and and you're and you're such a great spokesperson for so much of what's going on in these various. I mean, you just articulate quite well, frankly, what's going on in the culture. So, um, Sasha Bromsky, again, I'll put my magical credibility glasses on because I don't want to blow any credits, but. A columnist for the nation, you, as I say, you've read his stuff in the Atlantic and New York Magazine. And again, his books, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream alongside all of his other books. And once more, the uh, once more I wanna visit his most recent work, which is Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. Uh, Sasha Bromsky, again, a pleasure. Uh, love visiting with you and I look forward to the next time.
Likewise, I'll take my glasses off too. Pleasure <laughs> talking with you. My pleasure. Take care. It's the conversation and it's always fun to welcome back people with whom you've had really great conversations in the past and that's the case now. Dr. Shweta Chakraborty and Dr. Shweta Chakraborty is in addition to having a really cool name that I always labor to not screw up, it's a little bit longer, is involved in so many things that are of the moment and they have a lot to do with climate change and global warming. But also human behavior. And as I see the society struggling with both of these things, it's particularly cool that we get a chance to visit with you today. So, hello, Shet, how are you? Hi, so good to see you. So, I want to ask you about you have a podcast, you have a weekly radio show, it's called Risky Behavior. And you also have podcasts. I mean, I think you're something of a real communicator. So, I need you to communicate with me how and and what is the best way to bend human behavior to accommodate what is an urgent need to address climate change and global warming? Well, with these wildfires in California that have been taking over our TV screens this past week and last year and the year before, I mean, we can stop having ignition related events, whatever that might be. In this case, it was the gender revealed party, which the memes across the world making fun of Americans for this new ridiculous tradition that is relatively new in terms of you know all the different ways we can market and commercialize our lives. Um, but beyond that, there's other ignition events that we can we can be much more aware of, like how we treat our environment. We're increasingly interacting with nature, especially during this lockdown. People are biking more, people are camping more, people are hiking more, and all of those are really good things. But there's always counters to the positive. And in this case, the increased interaction with the environment is resulting in recklessness and carelessness that can result in ignitions, like tossing a cigarette, like not putting out a campfire. These are the kinds of things that we as a society should be better, more aware of and much better evolved towards because we are just becoming closer and more simultaneous in terms of the different impacts of climate change. And it is just not something that we can be reckless with historically as we have been. But how to get us as a society and a culture to become less reckless, to become more aware. I mean, all of what you've just said is is clearly the case. But it seems as though our challenges are to not act as we did 40 years ago. I mean, it seems as though we have the same sort of disposable, reckless view toward the environment around us. And what I guess what I'm asking you as a, as a behavioral scientist is how and and with what do we communicate to try to change that behavior? So as much as I wish there was a magic bullet in terms of answering this question, in terms of changing widespread human behavior across the United States, we can't communicate in any one way because the American public is very segmented and we all know we're extremely polarized leading up to this election. You can tell whether or not what your political beliefs are based on what your attitudes towards certain risks are. This has never been the case before. So if you ask somebody present day, if they fear climate change and the risk around the planet warming, or if they believe that COVID-19 is as serious as experts say it is, 
you can identify where they fall on the political spectrum. That goes to show how political identity influences perception of risk, regardless of what the reality of that risk is. So the same messaging is not gonna work across the board. The American public is just far too polarized. So the best way to communicate the reality of the risk so that people actually change their behavior and we can predict their decisions and their behavioral outcomes is to make sure that the wording and the framing is appropriate for the values that are most important to these different groups. So what is it that conservatives care about? What is it that liberals care about? How do you frame a message in a way that you're really gonna get through? And who is the person communicating? This network, as much as I love the Young Turks, is not the right network to communicate to one end of the political spectrum. And I think we know what that end is, right? So it really comes down to trust in the communicator. And are you framing it aligned to the inherent beliefs that that particular segment of the population holds? Well, that's a home run thought. I mean, clearly you're right. In fact, I love what you said and I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me. It's more than just a message, it's who's doing the messaging or how the messaging is being communicated. I think you're you're so right. So, let me just press you on this and ask, you know, in the face of these wildfires, it seems as though one of the messages that's coming back the other way is, well, it's forest management and it's a poor forest management in a democratic state or whatever it might be. I don't mean to make it political, but it is sort of being seized upon. Even the president, you know, got out of the plane and right away when he came to California, this is just, you know, happened in the last week. He's right away to it's forest management. That's the problem here. That's and when when the issue, of course, concerning forest management involves the feds in large measure. I mean, over half the state of California is federally owned land. So I guess what I'm I'm getting at is. Um, there is a way to push back, I suppose, on that. But it, you see how quickly it becomes a political game. And, and, and they hang a, a lot of what I think is a sort of a logic that's perverted or certainly tortured on, on the hook of things that really are not founded in fact. Yeah, you're giving a really great example of just how politicized science has become. So ultimately, your political identity is actually dictating where, where you're gonna fall in terms of your response to the wildfires at a political policy level. I mean, that's insane that we've gotten to this point. But again, that just goes to show how strong these various factors that seemingly have nothing to do with the reality of what's going on on the ground, the reality of the actual risk. Whether we're talking about the wildfires, that's a great example. Whether we're talking about COVID-19, whether we're talking about adaptation or mitigation to climate change, your political identity and that that is then propagated by Trump really will dictate what you think and what you believe about it. And so what Trump did when he arrived in California, he was trying to unburden his administration of any real accountability. And Californians, even though he was in the state of California and apparently speaking to Californians, was not actually his audience. He was saying what he was saying to reach the ears of those who have been relatively cocooned from some of these impacts on climate change. And what I you know, say over and over again is even if you haven't directly experienced flooding, droughts, um, severe wildfires, storm surges in the East Coast, there is no such thing as being relieved of these impacts now or in the future because we are part of a connected ecosystem. And even those who seem as though they are going to be relatively safe from some of these increased frequency and high probability events as the planet continues to warm, they have another thing coming. And this is why it's really important to not just kind of allow ourselves to give in and say, okay, well, we're not gonna reach some of these people that are just gonna go along with and believe whatever it is that 
they're, they're, and in this case specifically, the Trump Republican administration is putting forward. We can't afford to do that because everyone is truly going to be affected by this. You referenced something along the way there that is troubling to me, and that is the dismissal and, I mean, worse than dismissal, the demonization of science. It starts with, I think, scientists or scientific authorities, and then it extends to entire fields of science, you know, of the infectious disease. I mean, there's certain climate science, certainly, you know, and now that seems that climate science has has sort of been in the barrel for a while now. I wonder how to fight back on something like that. Yeah, and this has been, again, one of those things that scientists have known for decades. And so when some of these wildfires and the increasing probability and frequency and intensity that we're seeing year after year is apparently shocking the public. This is something that the climate science group <laughs> for decades has you know, warned the public about and has warned policymakers about. None of this is surprising. Just as the infectious disease outbreak, COVID-19 wasn't surprising. That's why it's so important to listen to science and scientists because there is no dogma involved, it's data. And we have to make policies and decisions based on data because anything else is going to result in the situations we're seeing now, which is again, being really unprepared for simultaneous massive impacts like Hurricane Sally hitting the southeast of the United States while these wildfires are going on. And our government can't afford this. We only have so much of a budget of disaster relief and recovery, which is now, thank goodness, as of a couple years ago, being allocated to wildfire, just generally land management around wildfires in California. But that is too little too late, right? Because there has been years of building up that has required maintenance from the west of America, California, Oregon, Washington. But they haven't had the budget to be able to do it because so much of the money was going into relief and recovery as opposed to proactive preparedness. So if we don't think about all of the impacts occurring simultaneously and proactively preparing against them, then we are going to find ourselves running to catch up as we are right now and trying to spread thin the funds that we do have for disaster relief. People deserve disaster relief, but can we afford to keep doing this? I mean, you you make the, the case so passionately and so accurately and you even leave out what's happening in the Arctic and the uh, the breaching of the Arctic now and, and you know, Californians are being choked by some of the worst air in the world as a result of the blow off from these wildfires. So, I mean, it certainly seems like it's a moment in time for a lot of these cases to be made. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's just been going to increase again in frequency and intensity, and we're gonna see more simultaneous impacts at the same time. We need to get smart, we need to get proactive. I put my credibility glasses on again because I just want to thank you. I wish we had more time. I really love that you think about how to communicate. And you said something I have to say, I mentioned it once before, but in this conversation, who is communicating is as important as in the equation of how to communicate. So Shwena Chakarborty, thank you so much. Risk and behavioral scientist, climate change expert, and again, your radio show every week is called Risky Behavior. And I believe you're, you still do the podcast, don't you? That is actually the podcast, yeah. Oh, cool, okay, great, 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 great. So thank you, check out Risky Behavior on the radio and on the podcast. And thank you for joining us. We always appreciate a visit with you.
Thanks for having me. All right, Sasha.